Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. My name is Joanna, and today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks be to God. I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 5. While you're turning there, I'd just love to continue this posture of worship uh, in prayer. So if you would, pray with me. And if you're comfortable, if you wouldn't mind opening your hands kind of in a palms up way, just as an outward expression of what we want our hearts to be ready to receive uh, from the Lord. Father, we just sang that no matter what uh, happens in life, every step, every breath, every plan, every failed plan, every success, every victory, that we would be able to sing and say and pray, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Father, we confess that we do not always say that. In fact, we do not often say that. So Holy Spirit, right now, I ask that you would convict and you would forgive. Lord, you are the only one that knows every single person in this room right now. You know our thoughts right now. You know our hearts right now. You know our emotions right now. You know our failures. You know our successes. And you look at us with love in your eyes. and you call us to yourself. You draw us into you. So Lord, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to draw our hearts towards you. Father, allow us to release control and just follow you. God, make everything tasteless and boring in our lives except you and you alone. 
give us a satisfaction that we can't explain. Make us delight in you and give us the desires of our hearts. As we continue to open your word and worship you, Lord, we we do just that. We give this time to you. We ask that we would put ourselves under the authority of you and your scriptures. You would prod us, you would stir us, you would convict us, you would guide us, and that you would give us life and life to the full. We pray all these things in your son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. When I was in high school, <clears throat> um, every summer the, mission sh- the, the high school youth group would go on a mission trip and we would go to Jamaica every, every uh, summer for about a week. And what we would do is about 20 or so of us, we would fly into Montego Bay and then we would get on a bus and we would kind of drive south, kind of through the mountains through more of the villages into the uh, more impoverished areas of Jamaica, and we would get to the city called Savannah Lamar. And we would run two different vacation Bible schools, one in the morning at a church more in the villages and the uh, rural areas, and then one in the afternoon more in like a, a city center, more of an urban context. And then each evening what we would do is we would do a different activity throughout the week. So like one night we would do, I think Monday nights we would do like a basketball camp for the boys and like a craft and game night camp for the the girls. And then one night we would uh, go to an orphanage and we would just bring a guitar and our little drums and bring some games and we would sing and dance and play with these um, orphan kids. Uh, Another night we would go to like a church service on a Wednesday night. And the, the night that always stuck out to me, that was always the most impactful, was the night that we'd go to an infirmary. And an infirmary, an, another word for an infirmary is hospital, but that's uh, much too generous a term for what this was. This was in some of the poorest parts of Jamaica, and essentially what this infirmary was is it was two, like, long um, buildings. They were more like hallways with a tin roof on top of them. And one of the long hallways with the tin roof was for the women. One of them was for the men. And essentially, there was no medical care. There was no care or service for any of these people. Um, They were given three meals a day. And by meals, it was like a cup of soup and a piece of white bread three times a day, maybe a piece of cheese. And some of these people were crippled, couldn't walk. Some of these people didn't have appendages, arms, legs. Some of these people were blind. Some of them couldn't carry a conversation uh, with you, carry on a conversation with you. Some of them were just very, very uh, old. And essentially what all of these people were doing is they were just waiting to die. They were just living and waiting to die. And we went in, the first time I went was uh, my sophomore year of high school. And... um, because these people had nothing, they had everything that was on their twin bed. That was it. They had no family, no friends, nothing, nobody coming to them. Because they had nothing, I went in naively thinking my sophomore year of high school that we were going to go in with our Bibles and prayer and a guitar to sing to these people and we were going to pray over them. We were going to share the gospel with them. We were going to read Bible stories over them. We were going to sing with and for them. And I found out very quickly that the exact opposite happened. We got in there, and I remember the boys, of the, the girls in the youth group would go to the women's section, and the boys would go to the men's section, and you enter in like the near end of this long hallway, and so you just see twin beds for a really long time with just these people there, and 
I remember opening my Bible and about to read a Bible story and somebody, one of the men, he grabbed me and he's like, no, no, read this Bible story. This is my favorite Bible story. Read this Bible story. I was like, okay, we'll read that Bible story. And then we would go and we would start to share our story and share the gospel and they would, they would stop us and they would start to share the gospel with us and, and share their stories with us. We would go, this one man in particular, we would go and we would go up to pray for him and he grabbed my hand and he pulled me close and he started praying for me. He asked me my name and how he could pray for me. And the first time we walked in, we're at, like I said, we're at the near end of the hallway and at the very, very far back right corner, there was this man on this twin bed and he just starts yelling, hey, come here, come here, come here, come here. And me and my, a couple of my friends were like, okay, we'll go there. So we grabbed a guitar, we kind of went over there, we're like, hi, and he's like, hi, my name's Livingston, let's sing songs. And we're like, okay, guess we're gonna sing some songs. So I was like, Livingston, what do you wanna sing? He's like, I wanna sing Amazing Grace. All right, so we sang Amazing Grace, did a few chorus, forgot some of the words, but it's okay. Then that song ended, and then he's like, okay, okay, now, now I wanna sing um, How Great Thou Art. I'm like, okay, Livingston, you're the man. We'll sing How Great Thou Art. We'd sing, we sang How Great Thou Art, it finished. He's like, what's next? He's like, now I wanna sing I'll Fly Away. Okay, I'll Fly Away. And over and over and over again, this happened. We would sing a song to this man who has nothing, and he'd be like, what's next? Like, what's the next song? And we sang Amazing Grace probably 30 times within that time frame. And I remember my sophomore year, 15, 16 year old, and I was looking at this man, Livingston. And everything he owned was right there on that twin size bed. He had one shirt, he had one pair of shorts, he had no shoes, no flip-flops. He couldn't walk, by the way. I forgot to mention that. He was crippled. He couldn't walk. No family visiting him. No friends. Three meals a day, maybe. And he's singing Amazing Grace so loudly and so off-key, by the way. And he was singing with the biggest smile. And chorus after chorus, tears were just streaming down his face. And I thought to myself in that moment, I don't know if I've ever experienced a happiness that Livingston had. I don't know if I've ever been as content as Livingston, a man who has nothing and is waiting to die. Because here's what I think all the time. I think this phrase, I'll be happy when, right? I'll be happy when this thing happens in my life. I'll be happy when, you know, when you're a kid, it's like I'll be happy when it's summer break and there's no more school, right? I'll be happy when I get into the next grade and then all your problems go away when you get into high school, right? Like that's just what happens. Or when you're about to get your license, I'll be happy when I get my license and I get this unlimited freedom. Not what happens, by the way. Uh, maybe it's I'll be happy when I find somebody. I feel lonely. I want to find love. I want to find somebody I can live life with. Once I find that, then I'll be content. I'll be good to go, I'll be happy. Or maybe I'll be happy when this you know, new uh, self-help strategy that I'm implementing in my life or this new diet, once that gets in place, then we're solid, I can exhale. Or I'll be happy when I get the recognition that I deserve for my job and I get that promotion and I get that extra paycheck and then all the, uh, the anxieties that come with my job right now and my money situation right now, once those are gone, then I'll be happy. I'll be happy when my kids get out of this phase that they're in. 
Right now it's a really hard phase, and so once they're out of that, then I'll be happy, I'll be content. I'll be content, I'll be happy when I have kids. I'll be content, I'll be happy when all these relationships, my family relationships, my friend relationships, my work relationships, right now they're really strenuous and they bring me a lot of anxiety, but once that finalizes, then I'll be able to exhale and be happy. I'll be happy when I don't have to keep going to the doctor for either myself or for somebody else. I'll be happy when the current situation that I'm in in life right now is different. Have you ever thought those things before? If you haven't thought them explicitly, have you ever felt those things before? Once this, then, oh. Because the reality is, is we all want deep happiness, right? And by the way, when I say happiness, I don't mean like this shallow, paper-thin, like dead leaf type of happiness that if you grip it too tightly, it'll just crumble. Like, I'm happy that I'm eating pizza tonight. Like, I'm not talking about that happiness. I'm talking about a happiness that is otherworldly, that you can actually look at your life in whatever circumstances you're in. If you're Livingston, who has nothing to his name and no friends and no family and is dying or whatever situation you're in, you can look at your life and you can say, I am content. I'm happy. Nothing that I get or lose can deter me from this state that I'm in right now. That's what I'm talking about in deep happiness. Now, do you want that? Do you want that happiness? This is a real question, this is a rhetorical question, but this is a real question. Do you want that happiness? Do you want that contentment? Now before you say yes, before I say yes, before we say yes, we have to know something. That if you say yes to that contentment and that happiness, that means you have to do something. And it's this. It's letting go. It's just releasing. Control expectations. In order to get that, we have to let go of everything that we use in our lives to numb ourselves from this void inside. We have to release things that we use to distract ourselves. What am I talking about? I'm talking about work. I'm talking about busyness. I'm talking about buying just stuff. I'm talking about friends, family, entertainment, drink, food, Clothes, social media, emails, we have so many ways to distract ourselves and numb ourselves. And the person who has the most to lose in life, it is that much harder to let things go. But when we do, when you do, some of you have experienced this before, when you let go, when you drop your nets, when you leave the boat, your family ties, your occupation, your work, and you follow Jesus, that, that state that you're in of just contentment, of happiness, of joy is yours. It's a gift. Essentially, what I'm saying is that when you repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, all of this and more is yours. The promises are made to those of us who release and repent by Jesus for true contentment, true happiness, true joy, true peace. And if you haven't experienced that, if what I'm saying sounds like you know fairy tale land, that it's only for the spiritual elites, if you haven't experienced that, then let me just gently and lovingly say you should seriously evaluate the state of your relationship with Jesus. 
Because what we're about to see is that Livingston-type happiness and contentment is not just possible for the spiritual elites or anybody else, or if you pray hard enough, like you'll get it, or like, yes, I love Jesus, so therefore all the concerns in my life are gone. No, I'm not talking about Grinnett and Barrett type of a happiness. I'm talking about a deep richness, that Livingston-type happiness is yours. It's yours. And that's exactly, exactly what Jesus promises. We're in the Gospel according to Matthew. Gospel according to Matthew, if you remember, is divided up into five movements. Each movement ends with the teaching of Jesus. The first movement we're on is the Sermon on the Mount, hence the little, you know, mountains, movement one. And we're starting the Sermon on the Mount. If you have a, excuse me, if you have like a red letter Bible where Jesus' words are in red, you can actually see chapter five, chapter six, and chapter seven are all in red. That whole thing, chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why was I just talking about happiness and contentment and joy and all of these things? Because the first thing that Jesus, the first introduction to the first sermon of Jesus in the New Testament, he starts by saying a, a, a word, and it's, we're gonna get to that word in a second, I'm getting ahead of myself, but before we dive into the Sermon on the Mount, there are two preliminary things I wanna talk about about the sermon that are really easy, easy to misinterpret. And the first is this, who, the first is this, who is the sermon to? It's to the disciples, okay? The sermon is to the disciples. Look at chapter five, verse one. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them. Okay, so who's he teaching? He's teaching the disciples, which means what, who is the Sermon on the Mount for? Is it for Christ, disciples or non-disciples? It's for disciples. Is it for Christians or non-Christians? It's for Christians. What is the Sermon on the Mount? It is a explanation of what life as a Christian can and should look like. There are a lot of really popular f- phrases and verses in the Sermon on the Mount, and they sound pretty uh, like out there. They sound pretty like ideological. Like, um, you know, don't murder, but also don't be angry, right? Don't commit adultery, but also don't lust. Your salt, your light, um, when you pray, when you fast, be complete as your heavenly Father is complete. Um, if you don't do these things, the sermon ends with, if you don't do these things, you're actually a foolish man who builds his house on the sand, and when the storm comes, you're, you're, you're gone. Now, if you read these things, it can, be, it can seem like a very high bar that Jesus is setting. Like, whoa, Jesus, you really expect me to not even be angry with somebody? And if I'm angry with somebody, then I'm murdering them? You really expect that of me? It can seem like a, ha- a high bar. But here's the answer. Yes. Because why? It's to the disciples. Which means what? You've already let go, repented, believed, the Holy Spirit is now in you and now this actually becomes possible. This is not some ideological thing to live up to that Jesus is stringing a carrot in front of you saying like, hey, be better, try harder. This is reality. This is conventional Christianity for the Christian, the Sermon on the Mount is. So first it's to the disciple and second, it's from Jesus. That's the second thing. I know this is really profound, right? Like who's giving the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is giving on the Sermon on the Mount. What does that mean? that the sermon cannot be separated from the person of Jesus. Cannot be separated from the person of Jesus. Look at chapter four, verse 23, 24, 25. Just right above chapter five. Chapter four, verse 23. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then, verse 24, news about him started to spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him, listen to this crowd, 
They brought to him all of those who were afflicted. You ever been afflicted before? Those suffering from various diseases, intense pains, the demon possessed, the epileptics and the paralytics, and guess what he did to them? He said, get out of my way, I have a mission to do. No, and he healed them. Who is Jesus? He sees your brokenness, he loves you, and he heals you. Who's giving this sermon? The person who sees your brokenness, who loves you, and who heals you. If this sermon is separated from the beauty of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the character of Jesus, then this sermon, yeah, it becomes some thing that you'll never live up to. But this sermon is given by the one who loves you, who made you, who gave himself for you. So, sermon is to the disciples, meaning that what is described in the sermon is just normal life in the kingdom of heaven. It's already not yet, but it's just normal life in the kingdom of heaven, and it's given by Jesus, the one who loves you, the one who heals people. He draws a crowd that you and I would be, frankly, kind of offended by if we saw them today, and he loves them, and he heals them. Now, if you're Jesus, you're about to start your sermon, first sermon recorded, you know, in the New Testament, how would you start it? Funny illustration, or funny story, cool illustration, you know, hi, my name is Jesus, thank you for coming to this mount today, you know, turn, take your Bibles. Like, how would you start the sermon, and what does he do? Chapter five, verse three, he starts it with this word, blessed. Okay, let's stop there. <laughs> it's one of those weeks. We get one word added, we're, we're already stopping. Blessed, first of all, besides bless you when somebody sneezes, when is the last time you've used the word blessed in your life, right? Like, maybe, maybe you have, in which case, I hope that wasn't offensive, but we don't use this word uh, often, and it's kind of a vague word that we just are like, oh yeah, blessed. Also, we say it blessed. Why do we say it blessed? Why don't we just say blessed? Anyway, whatever. Neither here nor there. He starts out with this word blessed. Now, in Greek, there's two words that we only have one English word for, and it's the word bless. So we have one English word, blessed, but really behind it, there's actually two words. There's two concepts going on here. Not in this, there's two definitions to these words. One is a blessing like by God, like God has blessed you. And we use that with like um, seeing somebody in there, like a Livingston, right, who has nothing. I would genuinely say God has blessed you, actually. Like he has actually blessed you. That's one definition of the word. That's not the word that Jesus uses here. There's another definition of the word blessing, again, we only have the word blessing for it, that actually describes the state of somebody that they're in, like the state that they're in. And most scholars agree today that a better translation of this word blessed is actually happy. Now, we, a lot of scholars avoid it and a lot of translators avoid it because happy kind of has this like, like thin uh, meaning in our culture and society. It means like, oh, well, you know, I'm happy if I have pizza, I'm not happy if I don't have pizza. But we're, what, what most scholars agree with is that, is that this word describes that deep happiness, that deep contentment, the state of somebody who's living a life that no matter what comes or what goes, they're just like, I'm content, I'm happy. That is what Jesus, that's the word that Jesus uses here when he says blessed. So I'm gonna be using the word happy when I start reading these words now, but you can also use the word blessed or like flourishing or complete or this Old Testament idea of shalom, of peace, of wholeness, of completeness, all that stuff. So Jesus starts his sermon and he starts by saying, hey, these are the types of people that are happy in life, truly happy in life. And he says, look at verse three, happy are those who are rich and have everything that they need. That's what you and I would say. 
Happy are the poor in spirit. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. People who are poor in spirit, people who are poor in, in spirit are not, like I would not just say they're happy in life. Luke's account of this just says blessed are or happy are the poor. What is Matthew saying? Is he talking about economically poor or is he talking about spiritually poor? Well, the answer, of course, is yes, right? You're, you've been in life before and you've seen people in life before who have nothing more to give They're at rock bottom. And those people in life are often, not always, but often the most receptive to outside help. What does poor mean? It means lacking resources. Poor in spirit. You are lacking the resources. This isn't just like a a humble in spirit and I should really try to be this. You are actually saying, nobody's gonna ask you to lead a Bible study. Nobody's gonna ask you to do something. Everybody's gonna look over you And those people who are at the bottom, at rock bottom, are actually the ones who are the most receptive to outside help, namely by Jesus. And Jesus says, these people are happy? The experience, what Jesus is saying here is that the experience of being in a lowly and insignificant position is actually one of the most favorable positions you can be in from God in the eyes of God, because why? Because the kingdom of heaven is yours. What have we been talking about? The kingdom of heaven. What's the theme of Matthew? The kingdom of heaven. Jesus, in and through himself, is bringing that kingdom here on earth. And Jesus is saying, if you are at your wit's end, if you are at rock bottom, if you have nowhere to go anymore, you have nothing to lose, you actually have everything to gain, because the kingdom of heaven is yours. So verse three is, happy are the poor in spirit. Verse four, He says, happy are those who mourn. Interesting. That sounds like a paradox. Happy are those who cry. Happy are the not happy. That's what it sounds like, verse four. Happy are those who mourn. Mourn over what? Well, this uh, verse, it's really cool. I hope you have a footnote in your Bible that says Isaiah 61. If you don't, you should just write down Isaiah 61 because we don't have time to get into it. But if you read that and then you read the Beatitudes, it's like, whoa, this is, I know what Jesus is saying now. Jesus is just, copying Isaiah. Not really, he's original. Um, so, so he says, happy are the poor. In Isaiah 61, I'll give you a little bit of the context here. It says that those who mourn will be comforted. And what were these people mourning over? They weren't mourning over personal sin, right? It's not a mourning over your personal sin. What they were mourning over is that the wicked in the world are actually the ones who are winning, and those who do the right thing are on bottom. <laughs> you ever felt that before? I'm doing the right thing and I can't seem to catch a break. And I see this person and they're cheating the system and they're figuring out things on their own and they seem to be successful in life. That is not the way that God has intended it. Happy are those who mourn. Mourn over what? Mourn over the state that there is a a true and real power in this world, the prince of the power of the year, that is ruling And it seems that the wicked always get their way and I'm just over here trying to follow Jesus and I can never get anything right. And I always get looked over. And this is not as it should be. Happy are those who mourn, why? Because what does Jesus say later in this gospel? The first will be last and the last will actually be first. 
Next week, we're gonna talk about how the people who are in that position, who are persecuted because of righteousness, because of doing the right thing, they are actually the ones who are most valued in this life. Happy are those who mourn, why? Because they are going to be comforted one day. Not just like this vague, generic comfort. They're gonna have the God who, has, who claims to have seen every tear that you've cried, heard every longing of your heart, and he's going to welcome you, and he's going to comfort you, and pain will be no more. Happy are those who mourn. I mean, really what Jesus is saying that the, the people who are bothered by the tragedy of this world the fact that there are wicked on top and there are broken relationships and they see everything that's going on and it grieves them, those are the ones that are truly content. The people who, who don't choose a lifestyle that distracts them from pain, it's, like I said, it's easy to distract us from pain in this world. The people who don't do that and actually internalize the brokenness in this world and feel it, those are the ones that Jesus is talking about here. The people who pay attention to everything that's horrible in the world, everything, that is horrible in the world, and they internalize it and grieve over it, these are the ones that are happy. Why? Because God is near you. God is with the wholehearted, no, the brokenhearted. And one day that grief, that mourning that we have over evil systems and structures and politics and empires of the day will be made right, and we will be comforted. Happy are those who mourn. The next, verse five happy or blessed or content or flourishing or whole are the humble. Humble. Humility has become a very uh, good thing to strive for in our culture. Uh, sorry, it is a good thing, right? Like humility is, is a good thing. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Jesus was humble. We should pursue that. Uh, humility in an honor-shame culture, which is what Rome was, um, um, Israel was under the Roman Empire, what they were, humility was not a good thing to be. It wasn't until Christendom when humility became like, hey, you should really try to be humble. Maybe some of your translations say meek. There's a popular interpretation that is wrong, and I'm just gonna say it now, that meekness and humility is having power and choosing not to use it. That is not true. Meekness and humility is having nothing. It's having nothing to give. Moses, uh, being, being unimportant. Meekness and humility is being unimportant actually feeling and thinking that you're unimportant, even if you are important, or actually literally being unimportant. Who is Jesus talking to? Talking to his disciples, who's the crowds in the background? All of these people who are afflicted, demon-possessed, broken, epileptics, paralytics, all of these people who have nothing, they are truly the ones who are me. They literally are unimportant. And Jesus is saying these people are actually happy. There's two characters in the Bible that were also called meek or humble. One of them was Moses. Moses, important or unimportant? It was very important. But did he consider himself important? No. He was meek. He was humble. This is why people thought they could walk all over him, and they did. This is why people started rebellions against him, and they did. He didn't fight back. Moses did not fight back. When his brother and his sister said, hey, we're going to take over because you have no idea what you're doing, he said, okay, I don't know what to do, Lord. How would you respond in that situation? Yeah, right. Do you talk to God face to face? Did you go up to the mountain and get the Ten Commandments and bring them down? No. No, you didn't. But also, no, that's not how he responded. And Jesus is also the person who's called meek and humble. Did he talk back when he had every single right to defend himself to the Pharisees, to the disciples, to the Roman politicians, 
to Pilate now. What did he do? He sat there. He took it. He was meek. He was humble. The most important man on the earth was simultaneously somehow the most meek and humble person on the earth. Again, not a good thing. Another parallel between Moses and Jesus that I skipped over that we're going to go back to right now. We've been talking a lot about this Jesus as the new Moses theme in Matthew. Matthew, uh, Moses uh, escaped um, being killed by Pharaoh. Pharaoh threw all the baby boys in the Nile, right? Jesus did the same thing. Jesus escaped from Herod, who killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Moses came back to deliver his people from Egypt. Jesus came back to Matthew 1.21 to save his people, deliver his people from Rome? No, from their sins, a far more powerful and evil tyrant than Pharaoh. Moses took the Israelites, passed through the waters of the Red Sea, and they were given an identity after that. Jesus did what? He passed through the waters of baptism, and he was given an identity. You are my son, my loved one. With you I'm well pleased. Moses went into the wilderness for 40, to the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus went where? To the wilderness for 40 days. Moses went up on a mountain to get the word from God and deliver it to the people of God. And where did Jesus go here? He walked up on a mountain. Except he didn't get a word from God and then give it to the people. He himself spoke the words of God to his people. He's creating a new people right now. This is why it's important that it's to the disciples and from Jesus. And he says, happy are those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who, who are humble or meek. And then finally, verse six, Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I don't know the last time you guys have fasted in your discipleship to Jesus. We're going to get to that in chapter 6, so get ready for that. But being hungry and thirsty is not a fun experience. We literally have funny words that we made up when this experience hits us. It's called hangry, right? Whenever you are hungry or thirsty, something happens to you. Your soul, your emotions, your mood. When you're thirsty, you just did a workout, went on a run, went on a walk, and you don't have that, you're, nobody's getting in your way. You're going to get that glass of water. This is not a fun experience. And oftentimes, we don't really choose to put ourselves in this situation, right? It affects our, our minds and our moods, and it just happens to you. Which means what? If you are hungry for something, does that mean, food, for food, does that mean you have food? No. If you're thirsty for water, does that mean you have water? No, it means you don't have something. And Jesus here says, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, which means what? They don't have it. We don't have it. Now, a quick definition of righteousness, because this is another bible word that can get really confusing and mistranslated. Righteousness at its basic core just means right relationship, and in order to keep right relationship, you have to do right things. Right? We, we use this phrase, oh, she did right by her, I don't know, boyfriend or something, right? Like, if the boyfriend was getting made fun of, then she stood up for him. It's like, oh yeah, she did right by him. We have that, that phrase. That just means righteousness. In order to preserve that relationship, she did a right thing, okay? We have this interpersonally, and we have this with God. In order to preserve a relationship, to have a right relationship, we do right things by somebody. We don't lie about them. We don't make fun of them. We don't uh, stab them in the back, literally or figuratively. We don't do any of these things, right? We do right by them. 
And we also are living in a world where that does not happen. We live in a world where people only do right by themselves and in the process do wrong to one another. We live in a world where people put their own needs and desires above other people's and so thereby they put themselves above them and so they do wrong to another person and then they wait for that person to make things right with them as if the impetus is on them and the burden of proof is on them rather than yourself. Ever experienced that before? We do this with each other, we do this with God. What is Genesis three except God, I actually think I know what is right for this relationship better than you do. God, I actually, I think I know how to make myself happy and content and you don't. I actually don't trust your word that you will give me the desires of my heart when I delight myself in you. So I'm gonna take matters into my own hands and what happens? Brokenness. Look at your life. Look at your relationships. Look at Ankeny. Look at the news. Look at the world. There are people living across the world right now in entire, in entire uh, countries that are at war with each other, in entire uh, systems that are, uh, that are oppressive in, in the entire world, right? This is happening today. What is that? That is broken relationships. That is not good things that are happening. And Jesus is saying, when you are the type of person that sees that brokenness and you desire for every wrong to be righted, that's when you're happy. When you are the person that sees the chaos in the world, when you see destruction and death in the world, in your house, in yourself, and you see that and you say, Lord, I want you to undo the wrongs. I want you to make these things right because guess what? He is doing it, but he's not yet doing it, right? He, it's the already not yet paradigm that we're in. The, heaven, the kingdom of heaven is here, but it's also not yet. So the people who notice it, the people who notice that it's wrong and that it's not okay that the wicked take advantage of those who are lowly, that the, the rich and the powerful of the world just take advantage and, and, and um, uh, exacerbate those who are lowly, that is not okay. And Jesus is saying that when you see that, when you long for that, you're happy. Do you long for that? Do you long for every wrong to be righted? Here's the promises to these types of people. Look at this next slide. The poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who are meek and humble will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Do you want this to be true of your life? We're, we're only looking at the first four. There's, there's more next week. This is just the first four. Do you want these to be true of your life? Now let me say this very clearly. I'm gonna say this throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. If you attempt to try to be more poor in spirit because you want the kingdom of heaven and you wanna be happy. If you attempt to try to mourn because you wanna be comforted and you wanna be happy. If you attempt to try to be humble or to try to hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will never get them. But, who's giving the sermon? Jesus. If you look to Jesus, if you do this and you let go of everything that you're hanging on to, 
If you just can't get enough of Jesus, you talk about what you love, what do you talk about? If you are in love with Jesus, if you're consumed by Jesus, if you're enamored by Jesus, if, you're just like, if you just like Jesus as a person, all of these things and more are yours. My junior year of high school, we went back to Jamaica, brought our guitars, brought our Bibles, we went to the infirmary. I walk in the near side of this long hallway with a tin roof, and I hear Livingston yelling at us in the back right corner. Hey, come here, come here, come here. We're like, yes, we're ready. We go over to him, he said, hey, I wrote a song. And I was like, whoa, don't worry, I'm not gonna sing it. Hey, I wrote a song. We're like, wow, that's awesome. And he starts singing, and here are the lyrics. Happy, 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 happy in the Lord. Singing God's commandments and trusting in his word. I want to be free. God's promises are true. That's why I'm happy, happy in the Lord. And he sang it so loudly and so off key. My senior year, we go back to Jamaica, walk into the infirmary, go into the near side, and I look in the back right corner at the twin bed and somebody else is, somebody else is sitting there. And I ask one of the caretakers, what happened to Livingston? Where's Livingston? She said that he had passed away in the time we were there, my junior year to my senior year. And we put music to his song, and we were gonna sing it to him. And in that moment, my heart sank, and then it rejoiced. Because the story of Livingston is not a tragedy. Here's a man who was happy. And he was poor in spirit. And he mourned because he saw brokenness in a room full of dying people. You see the brokenness and he mourned. And he was humble, so unassuming. And he hungered and thirsted for God to make that which is wrong, to make it right again. And guess what, guys? The kingdom of heaven is his. He is currently being comforted. He is currently and going to inherit the earth. And he is currently filled and he will continue to be filled. Do you want that? If you pursue just these things, you'll never get them. But if you look to Jesus and live, then all of this and more is yours. Father, we want you. We want nothing else except you. And God, if we don't want you, then we want to want you. So, Help us. Tune our hearts to fear your name. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Open our eyes to behold your beauty. Unite our heart to fear your name, God. Our hearts are wandering, and Holy Spirit, you are the only one that can bring them back. I pray for anybody in this room, or for everybody in this room right now, that if there's not been a moment of release, that your still small voice would break the strongholds of their heart. 
for those in this room who have had a moment of release, but Lord, are, re- are, are holding on right now to other things. They've experienced it, they've tasted it, they've seen it, but they've wandered. God, draw them back to you. Throw off the sin in their lives that so easily entangles. And for those of us who are just filled, for those of people in this room who are just filled, God, continue to fill them. I pray, Lord, that you would make us the most blessed, happy, content, flourishing people. You promise us your kingdom. You promise us heaven. You promise us comfort. You promise us the earth in the resurrection, and you promise that we will be filled. God, we don't have it fully yet, but give us a glimpse. Give us a glimpse of you. Allow us to taste and see that you are good. Allow us to be like these people, desperate, have nothing to give, and we love you. We just love you. Allow us to be more like Livingston, who is all these things and more because he was just so in love with you. Make all other loves disgusting to us. Keep us from idols, we pray. Do not deliver us into temptation. I'm not, not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, we know that yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Ink and Gospel. Thank you.